Brothers and sisters, this, this new year, I just want to consider two verses. And these are, and these are some, of, some of my favorite verses in Scripture. And they, and they ought to shape the way that we see and live the Christian life. So, but but this, isn't, this, isn't, this also like isn't, isn't really a New Year's sermon. It's really a second week of Christmas sermon. Because according to the liturgical calendar, Christmas season doesn't end until the 6th. Those are our 12 days of Christmas. So what we're talking about today is not only intentional ways for us to serve the Lord this year, and hopefully for the rest of our lives, but, but also we need to hear why the incarnation of Christ matters. Why the Son of God became flesh. Why the immortal one becomes mortal. And, 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 and I'll be honest with y'all, this is, this is probably the hardest sermon that I have ever preached. Some of you are not going to like me anymore after this sermon, because I'm going to get in your heads and in your business. So, but, 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 I just want you to remember that it's not, it's not me, it's the Lord by his spirit and, and his word making you feel that way. So don't shoot the messenger, because I'm struggling with it just as much as you are. Okay, so the text is Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ja, ja. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Super short, two verses. But since we had a really short worship time, that means that I can draw the sermon out. So obviously, so first of all, this, this text needs to be put into context, right? So after all, it, be, it, begins with a, it begins with a therefore. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So because it begins with that therefore, there's, a, there's an argument that comes before it. The book of Romans very, very clearly lays out the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that we're all sinners who, apart from the Lord's intervention, are bound for the wrath and judgment of God. And this isn't just an external judgment. We, it's something we, we, we know in our hearts to be true because we don't meet our own standards, much less God's law. And as Paul is going to say in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so in the midst of this, of this darkness, God sends his son as an atoning sacrifice. And because Christ bears our sin on the cross in our place, we can be justified. That is, we can be set right with God. Now, all of that sounds very personal, and it is, but never far from Paul's mind is the, in the book of Romans is the communal dimension of the gospel. That is, God has always operated with a people, and the biblical people of Israel were those people, and with the coming of Christ, the nations, or the Gentiles, are grafted into that people. And so we're reminded by Paul that God saves us individually, and he saves us communally, preparing us for the redemption of the cosmos. And he argues all of this in what's called the indicative, in the first 11 chapters of the book. He's basically saying, these are the things that God has done. This is who you are. But Paul also works this same way in basically all, 
all of his letters. He begins with the indicative and then moves into the imperative. That is, because Christ has done this, this is what life in Christ looks like. Because Christ is your king, this is what it looks like for you to be a member of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we can never divorce belief and practice. It's one of our deepest temptations to separate those two. And it's one thing that the scriptures never allow us to do. And so Romans 12 actually begins a cascade of commands. Commands that, that only make sense if you understand the gospel. They're commands, and, and, and not only do they only make sense if you understand the gospel, but you, you can only actually, you can, the only way that you can do them is if you understand the gospel and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And they're summed up in these first few verses, which give kind of the principles for what right relationship with God and right relationship with our neighbor looks like. I want us to hear verse 1 again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The first thing that Paul emphasizes in this chapter of application is that our faith is a material, bodily faith. He's very specific here. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, offer yourselves, telling you to just kind of generally orient yourself toward the Lord. No, he says, offer your bodies, your flesh, your, your hands, your feet, all that you possess. Offer it all to the Lord. And the image that ought to be in our minds is that of Christ, the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Paul is saying that if, if we're united to him, then we ought to offer ourselves to God in the same way. Well, that's all. That's all well and good, but it also sounds kind of vague. I mean, what, is it, what does it really mean for me to offer my body as a living sacrifice to God? Do, does it mean that I should pray more? That I should, that I should read my Bible more? That I should think about God more? Does it mean that I, that I really need to renew my Planet Fitness membership and, and, and redevote myself to, to getting swole for the Lord? Now, I think all of those things are fine and, and helpful, but the scriptures actually reveal to us that our love of God is not measured by how much we read the Bible or by how much we pray. Those things are important. But when we ask the Apostle John what it means to sacrifice as Jesus did and to live in such a way, it's very, very interesting where, where he focuses. In 1 John 3:16 and 17, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Okay, so far so good. What does the next verse say? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Huh. Interesting. You see, brothers and sisters, there are two profoundly body-centered sins that show up over and over again as things that keep us out of the kingdom. The first of those is porneia, sexual immorality, which I thought about doing a sermon on, but there's no kids' church, so I decided to spare you. But the second 
is pleonexia, which literally means have moreness, but it's translated as covetousness or greed. The desire to accumulate, the constant desire for more, the willingness to elevate your self-interest above that of your neighbor. This is perhaps one of the, this is perhaps the most anti-gospel of all of the vices. Specifically in like, like in reform circles, we love to talk about pride. Today I want to talk about greed. You see, brothers and sisters, greed is a monster. And if we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God, it begins and ends with a deep resistance to greed and self-interest. For the, for the, last, for the last three months of, of my daughter Junia's life, so her entire life, uh, she, she does not like me to hold her. I've mentioned this before, but it's traumatizing, so I'm going to mention it again. At night, so sometimes Desiree will get frustrated because she's got to hold the, she's got to hold the baby all day, and she, and she wants me to put her to sleep, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. But the only way that that happens is if I tire her out. So I take Junia, and I hold her close, and I sing, and I, and I talk to her as she angrily screams at me <laughs> until she wears herself out. It was hard at first, but now it's just routine. I just like, I just, I know, I know you're going to do this. I love you. I'm also stronger than you. So you can keep crying. I'm going to swaddle you and you're going to fight. It's, it's, it's okay. Just right, right, right here. I think in the last year I've been this way with the Lord. I don't think I've yelled at the Lord, but I've definitely made mental excuses for this sin. I think I've, I've imbibed many of the excuses that we have for disobedience and many of the kind of modes of self-justification that, are, that basically amount to fighting in a way that's similar to the way that Junior fights me. And in the midst of it, the Lord has offered nothing but his love. But as the days have gone by, I've had to reckon with my own greed. And I'm going to try to walk you all through that same process. So I'm going to warn you, what you're about to hear, you won't be able to unhear. And if you let it, God will use it to radically change your life. But you've been warned, it's, it's going to hurt. And I'm preaching to me too, but this is the burden that this, that this text creates in me. So I know your first response when I mention greed. What even is it? I mean, it sounds nebulous, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a greedy person. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a millionaire. I'm not trying to kind of stack up stack racks. Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question. I want to introduce you to uh, a man from the fourth century. His name is Basil of Caesarea. Tomorrow is actually his, his feast day in the liturgical calendar, making this all the more fitting. So he's born into a prominent and wealthy Christian family, and when his father dies, he's left a significant inheritance. But upon believing the gospel, he gives most of that inheritance away and actually enters a monastic community. But then he experiences a, what, what, what he might call a second conversion. He's convinced that, that the gospel requires significant cultural engagement and the creation of an alternate spiritual, economic, and political community. And so he leaves that monastic community and he becomes a bishop. And during his time as bishop, he founds the first public hospital ever. He's deeply convinced that, 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 that care for the poor is inextricably at the center of the Christian ethic. And when a famine hits his community, he gives a, he gives a, he gives, he gives a sermon. 
One of the sermons that he gives around this time is called To the Rich. And this sermon is an exegesis of Jesus' conversation with the rich young man. You may know the story. It's the one that ends with, with Jesus telling this man, go sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me. And this man goes away sad because he had great possessions. Now, when we read that verse, we love taking the super spiritual interpretation. That is, Jesus doesn't really mean that I have to give everything to the poor. What, what he really means is, oh, I just have to, like, not be so attached to my possessions. That is a more comfortable position for us to take. But I don't think it goes far enough. I want you to hear part of, part of Basel's sermon. This is what he says. Care for the needy requires the expenditure of wealth. When all share alike, dispersing their possessions among themselves, they each receive a small portion for their individual needs. Thus, those who love their neighbor as themselves possess nothing more than their neighbor. Yet surely you seem to have great possessions. How can this be but that you have preferred your own enjoyment to the consolation of the many? For the more you abound in wealth the more you lack in love. Let me say those last two sentences again. How else can this be but that you have preferred your own enjoyment to the consolation of the many? For the more you abound in wealth, the more you lack in love. What Basel is saying here is that the accumulation of wealth is theft. It's a breaking of the Eighth Commandment, that is, thou shalt not steal, and it's a breaking of the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff or greed. In summary, the sin of the rich man is a failure to love his neighbor as himself, because the resources of the world are meant for the flourishing of all of us, not just me. That's a different way of thinking about the world. And remember, this is, this is coming from a guy who knew what it was to be rich, and he left it for the Lord. So then how does he define greed? I want you to get ready for this. Who are the greedy? Those who are not satisfied with what suffices for their own needs. Who are the robbers? Those who take for themselves what rightfully belongs to everyone. And you, are you not greedy? Are you not a robber? What Basel is saying is that if you are looking to possess more than you need, then you are guilty of greed. That's a lot. Because that means that I'm greedy. And it means you probably are too. Which is actually a very, very dangerous place to be. Allow me to explain how dangerous. When Jesus lists the evil things that come out of us, that defile us, in Mark 7, 22, the second item on the list is pleonexia, covetousness, greed. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
In Romans 1.29, pleonexia is one, of the, is one of the forms of wickedness that describe a people who have forsaken the Lord. In Ephesians 5.3, Paul names these sins that, that must not even be named among, among the body of Christ. And he says sexual immorality, any kind, of, any kind of impurity, and pleonexia, greed, which is idolatry. In Colossians 3.5, we're told to put to death the things that belong to our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. When was the last time that you repented, or I repented, of our greed? When you look at your budget, how much of it is designated for the poor, and how much of it is designated for you? When you look at your investments, how much of it is in a system that requires exploitation and usury to continue? I, got it. I, got, I, I have to make a quick excursus about, about this word usury. Usury is lending money at interest. It's the definition of usury. For the first 1,600 years of the church, the Christian tradition is, there are, there are, there are a few things that, 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 the, that the Christian tradition is unanimous about. The, but, the, but the fact that lending at interest is a sin, first 1,600 years, not even a question. It's a sin. And yet, starting in about the 16th century, you get a number of people kind of starting to argue, well, no, 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 like usury is about like lending at exorbitant interest. So actually, in, in, uh, in England, you start, to, you start to see laws that, like, they cap, they cap the interest that you can loan at, they cap it at 10%. The scriptures say, none. Don't lend at interest. And yet, so much, of our, so much of our lives, the accumulation of even our own wealth, depends on that. Think about, last point on this, and I'm not going to get into all the specifics, because, you know, this isn't, a, this isn't finance, but your savings account... Do you know why your savings account makes money? It's because that is the money that, that the bank lends out. That is, you make money because of the usury that your bank commits. When you ask these questions, you start to see how deep this rabbit hole goes. So much of what we do depends on sin. What, what does it mean for us to apply the gospel to that reality? What, what, what might it mean to actually believe the scriptures when, they, when, when we're told in Proverbs that the one who gives to the poor lends to the Lord? What would it mean to heed Christ's words in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, where he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on, heaven, tre tre treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is, where you put your treasure is where you put your heart. Basil will say, where are your storehouses? Your storehouses are in the stomach of the poor. If we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God, brothers and sisters, it means that it requires us to repent of our greed. It requires us to devote ourselves and our resources to the needy. 
It means that we have to take the verse that we confessed in the hope of the gospel very seriously. That, that though Christ was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Now one of the things that Paul is actually saying in that chapter and that book is that just as Jesus gave everything that he had for us, so we should give everything that we have for one another. And he's not making like this lofty point about like spiritual riches and spiritual poverty. It's a very concrete point because if you look at the context of that text, he's talking about the Corinthian church supporting the Macedonian church, which is their poor brothers and sisters. And I want you to listen to what Paul says a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 8, 13 to 15. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. It's from Exodus. Paul and Moses, everyone's favorite Marxists. A lot of us don't give like that, y'all. Why? The scriptures call us greedy. Now, I know what's going through your minds. I mean, there are probably a few things going through your minds, but here's probably one of them. Some of you may not have everything that you need right now. And so you're thinking, this doesn't apply to you. It does. Don't worry, this is a temptation that hits all of us. Because if you don't have everything that you need, chances are you still want to appear as though you do. In avoiding that vulnerability of expressing your need, what you're showing is a self-interest that keeps you away from the Lord and it keeps you from experiencing the generosity of your brothers and sisters. But for the rich and the greedy among us, one of the things you're probably thinking is, but, but my investments are normal. A 401k or 403b, like, those, like they're normal. Stock options are normal. I know we think that. I think that. That's my first temptation. And then, and then Romans 12, 2 comes in. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that, that then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I have to be frank. The world wants you to be greedy. Our economy runs on it. Advertising and marketing are meant to convince you that you need things that you don't really need. That's like the whole point of it. Billions and billions of dollars are being actively pumped into the world to convince you to live beyond your needs. Note, I did not say live beyond your means. I said live beyond your needs. Conforming to the pattern of the world is succumbing to the idea that that's normal, that greed is unavoidable, that it's nothing that we need to repent of. After all, everybody's doing it. And the only way for me to survive or to get ahead is for me to play the game. Conforming to the pattern of the world is saying, you know what? I can serve both God and money. That's not what Jesus says. But we tell ourselves that. Brothers and sisters, we need our minds to be transformed. We need to be reminded of the wonder of the incarnation. That the Son of God, a divine person of immeasurable resources gave all because of his love for those who were enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. In giving all, he purchased the people and he tells them, by my spirit, live as I did. So here's the issue. And, and here's, what's really, here's what's really at stake. 
and I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want it to, I don't, like, I don't want it to sound like an accusation. So I'm just, I'm just referring to myself. I don't think I really believe Jesus when he says stuff. In the Sermon on the Mount, the end of Matthew 6, Jesus says, God knows your needs. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything that you need will be given to you. I don't, I don't really believe him. What when we talk about the idol of comfort, what we're talking about is greed. I want to have enough in the bank that I don't really have to depend on the Lord or on my brothers and sisters. We call that comfort. The scriptures call it greed. Jesus says, God knows what you need. Devote yourself to him and his priorities, and he will cover you. Specifically, that means the poor among you. And we say, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I get that, but like, I'll get to that eventually. The good news is that while we fail to believe the Lord and believe in the Lord, the encouragement that Paul offers is in that latter half of verse 2. Because why do we want to avoid conforming to the world and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Because that will enable us to test and enjoy the fruits of the good, true, and beautiful, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You see, brothers and sisters, most of us, or some of us, many of us maybe, have never enjoyed a miracle of God because we spend all of our resources trying to live lives where miracles aren't necessary. Let me say that one more time. Many of us have not experienced and enjoyed a miracle of God because we spend all of our time and our resources trying to build lives that, that make miracles unnecessary. We could each die tomorrow. What account would we give to the Lord in that day? Yeah, I was going to give to the poor, but you know, stuff, like stuff got in the way. <laughs> I don't think that's going to fly. We can't take it with us, and there's no guarantee of what will happen to our possessions after we die, no matter what we say in our wills. Obviously do a will, but like, people can do all kinds of stuff. So that's a lot. And, and if, you, if you feel convicted, so, so do I. I didn't want to preach this sermon. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has indeed given all, so you don't have to be attached to any of your stuff. This is one of the things that Paul is meaning when he says in Colossians 3, 3, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The gospel is an invitation to a new way of living. It's not so much that union with Christ makes you a better person. It makes you a different kind of person. You operate by a different logic that's going to be confusing to the world. If you seek to excise greed from your life, you're going to look different. But it's necessary. Why? Because the Son of God, who we, who we say we worship, he didn't see equality with God as a thing to be selfishly held on to, but he took the form of a servant. We often think about Philippians 2 in terms of pride and Christ's humility. What if we thought about it? in terms of greed and Christ's generosity? What if, we, what if we thought about it in terms of the fact that, that Christ saw his own benefits not, as, as not, 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 not fundamentally as things to hoard, but fundamentally as things to share? 
from beginning to end. Christ shares his spirit with us. He shares his love with us. He shares his grace and his mercy with us. And ultimately, he's going to share his reign with us. How can we look at our possessions and deny to our brothers or, or, to, to our brothers or sisters what they need? My encouragement to you, dear brother and dear sister, is to test and approve the will of God. When he promises to you that your gift to the poor is a lending to him, and he promises to repay you out of his own storehouse, believe him. Look at your spending. Begin, maybe, just a little thing. Begin by matching every dollar that you spend on yourself with a dollar that you spend on your brother or sister or neighbor who's suffering. Almost 50% of Waco's population lives in a USDA-declared food desert. 20% of our county is considered food insecure. And hunger is one of the most terrible ways to live and to die. Maybe that's your passion. Or maybe something else. But I want you to keep in mind that the corruption and the suffering that we see in the world is not going to be dealt with through your political activism. It, that might make a dent, but those are systems that operate by the logic of the world and its kingdoms. But here, among the body of Christ, we have a different opportunity because the gates of hell can prevail against a lot of different institutions, but they cannot prevail against the church. And so with this in mind, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Without priorities, we can, we can be paralyzed. So what is the antidote to your greed? A relentless commitment to generously fill the needs of your brothers and sisters. You see, our self-interest is not going to be defeated by mere denial. It will only be defeated if we, under, if we, understanding Christ's sacrifice, offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices. And offering our bodies to God means offering our resources to our brothers, sisters, and neighbors. So this year, meet the needs of your brothers and sisters. Get to know them. Get to know their needs. And then meet them. Because that's what love is. My prayer is that our minds would be renewed. And that our community would be revived. So that we could show the world what the grace of God really looks like. It's not just a bunch of people talking about Jesus. But a bunch of people living with Jesus as their king. The, 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 the verse that's been, that's been just living in my mind for now a few months... It's in Luke 4, this description of the early church. And, it says that, and Luke says that the grace of God was, was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy people among them. That's what the grace of God looked like. And my question, I'm getting, like, I, I, I keep asking this question, and I want this to be true. Is God's grace present among us? May we be that people. And may greed not even be named among us. Let's pray.